and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we can get high and haunted. Our guest is Clay McLeod Chapman, simply one of the busiest men in horror at the moment. When he's not writing comic books about the more sinister superheroes or making movies with Jordan Peele, he's known to knock out a novel or two. He was last on the show way back in episode 32, and now he returns with his brand new book, Ghost Eaters. It's an angst-ridden story of grief, ghosts and narcotics, and it's out today from Quirk Books. Now, Clay's always a blast. He's one of the kindest, most thoughtful and open subjects that an interviewer could ask for. And that comes through especially in this episode, where he reveals the emotional truth buried in this novel. We talk about our fears, our taste in horror movie ghosts, and even our drug experiences. And it turns out we're both pretty lame in that regard. Remember, as I say every week, you can support this show by subscribing and reviewing, or if you want something in return, sign up for Talking Scared Patreon for bonus episodes and stuff. The link's in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. But now, come with me to a trap house on the outskirts of the city. Pick a spot on the floor, and prepare to welcome your dead. Let's talk scared. Hi Clay, and welcome back to Talking Scared. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always nice to say welcome back, because it it suggests that the first time around went well. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, am I ever going to get a chance to go back um, to Talking Scared? And here we are. Yeah, you you just wrote another book, and here you are. It really is that simple. You write the books, I'll invite you on. Uh, I mean, you, you've been a massive supporter of this show since you first guested back in, uh, God, episode 32, how far we've come. 32. Yeah, yeah. What will this episode be? Do you know the this number This will yet? be 110, I believe. Oh my God. That's yeah. amazing, man. Congratulations. You're over 100 episodes old. Yeah, and that, I started with Paul Tremblay, I did 100 with Paul Tremblay, and now... 110 with you and that first 32 <laughs> that reached you really felt like a long time but but the uh the, the what is it i can't do the maths the 78 episodes since have gone really fast yeah anyway you're back this time with a brand new novel it's called ghost eaters and it's out today from quirk books it's a very novel take on whatever we consider the traditional ghost story and hmm. It's probably best if we start, as ever, with your introduction to the story, Clay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's my here's my pitch. Um, I mean, Ghost Eaters is a story about a haunted drug. Uh, pop a pill, see the dead. You know, it, it, to get a little bit more granular, it's specifically about a group of friends in their early to mid twenties. You know, post grad. You know, they're, they've, they've recently graduated from college and now they're entering into the real world. And, you know, they, the world was kind of handed to them on a <laughs> academic you know, platter. And now they're, they're kind of entering into the workforce, realizing they're maybe not as special or as singular as they thought they were. 
it centers around the relationship of <clears throat> two people in particular, our narrator, <clears throat> Aaron, and his, her best friend, Silas. And Aaron is, uh, you know, a, a kind of, the, the, the kind of, how am I going to describe Aaron? I don't know if I want to describe Aaron. She's, she's like, you know, she's the kind of empty vessel for, you know, what the world thinks of her. And I think like, to me, like there's something so prismatic about her and reflective of her, uh, which we can kind of mouth off about later. But uh, Aaron and her closest friend and kind of on again, off again, lover Silas have forged a relationship uh, that kind of withstands all laws of probability and, you know, reality. Um, and it it's unfortunate that Silas kind of succumbs to his own addiction at a certain point and uh, passes on. And um, strange things begin to happen once the group realizes that one of the drugs that Silas had been dabbling in was a uh, drug by the name of Ghost. And when you open up the doors to the other side, ghosts, you, you can see ghosts, but ghosts can see you and they might not mm. be so happy to be seen. And it's really hard to close Pandora's box, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I have a question later on. Well, not so much a question as a, as a kind of weird aside that I want to mention about this. So don't let me end the conversation without talking okay. about machine elves. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> so let's start with character because when i used to do this show right at the start i used to do this thing i used to say to people right the main thing i want to talk about with this book is is theme or character or setting or whatever i try and be a bit more expansive now but let's at least start with character because they feel pretty like like, like pretty flawed people and and i can't work out whether that's because everyone's flawed when you're in your early 20s or because there is just something about them. But like this central character, Silas, you told me off air that your early readers either want to sleep with him or kick his ass. <laughs> and why is that, do you think? Did you anticipate that polarity? I, I did not. I 100% did not expect anybody to, to, to kind of, uh, you know, whatever that dichotomy is. Um, I did my first reading in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, to a group of uh, students at a ghost story telling workshop. And it was astounding. Like it was like I had this young woman come up to me afterwards. First time I've read this. And she was like, oh, my God, I want to read more about Silas. Like I want, you know, I would totally go home with him. <laughs> and it, there was something so kind of jaw dropping to that, that, that kind of feedback uh right out of the gates um that i i've i've been kind of uh you know stupefied and you know flummoxed ever since but you know if i'm being completely frank i uh I, when i the the kind of origin of the story has its its genesis in uh this this notion of like in in my personal life in my own uh kind of early to mid twenties. Um, I had a friend who was extremely charismatic and extremely captivated and extremely just everything. Like he lived life in this beautiful goddamn way. And I, I loved him so much. 
with like every fiber. And we, I, I knew him from high school on into our post-academic years. And he was a poet. He was, he was his own kind of rimbo, Kerouac. Like it was, you know, he was the kind of like, there, there was something about him that just could not fit within these boxes that, that life and adult life in particular, you know, codify. He, he found drugs, he found heroin, he, he found himself kind of going down that path. And I found a personal level of, I guess, professional success at a similar kind of point in time. And it was, you know, one did not beget the other, but, you know, our paths started to kind of part, separate. Mm-hmm. And when he needed me the most and when he... Uh, was in need of love and support there was like he had a circle of friends that were there for him and i wasn't and it was awful because he passed away um he overdosed and it i wasn't there and i had i had done that thing where as a friend i thought by drawing a line I was, I was making a choice of like, you are, you have to, you know, like, I can't help you. I've tried to help you to whatever extent I had tried to help him. And, you know, I thought the tough love attitude was the way to go. And it, uh, I, I don't think it was. And, um, he, he, he died and I have, I don't know. Like it's it's so weird to even be talking about these things, but like it it was years ago. I mean, we're talking like over a decade ago, 15 years ago now. Like so much time has gone by. And uh I just wasn't there and like I've, you know, you when you when you boil it down in terms of like like true regrets in in life, um this is this is this is like the one, you know, it's really high up there. And uh, I've held on to that. And, um, you know, it's so friggin' funny how, like, you know, we grow older and we become whoever we become. And I don't know, like, that that moment in my life, like, I will say that I am Aaron. I've always kind of identified as Aaron and Silas, you know, these these versions, these archetypes of, of who they are are kind of rooted in my history. And like, it's just so messed up to even be confessing this, but I, I feel like I need to come clean with it because that that is ultimately one of the main genesis origin points of of ghost eaters because regret and 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 in that notion of like what like when someone you love is gone like how do you how do you let them go or how do you hold on to them and like i've never i've never been able to forgive myself for and and i don't think he would forgive me either for the way that we lost each other and i lost him there's there's an answer in there somewhere right i was close (laughs) jesus thank you so much for telling me that it's just hard to follow that up and not sound trivial you know what i mean it's hard to it's hard to hear that and then go, oh, okay, and this book without that that feeling yeah. really like I'm trivializing 
something profound. Um, so I'm, I'm throwing, I'm throwing what, whatever scripts I have is kind of going out the window here. So no, no, no. I, I, well, I, let me just interject really quickly to say mm-hmm. the the most ghoulish thing that one can do in my mind as a friggin' writer is to take something like this that happens in their life and 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 turn it into uh, something else. Like it isn't. My friend is not Silas. My me, I am not Aaron. You know, even if the kind of like root of the story is there, and like you know, it's I'm jumping all over the place. Forgive me, but like I, you know, that first draft that I turned into my editors, they <laughs> they the thing that they wrote back, which was more kind of like that first draft was definitely a lot closer to like this is me. This is this is my friend. Um, they got back to us and they were like, this is relentlessly interior, <laughs> grim, and plotless. Um, and, and you know, th- I needed to get that first draft out, exercise the kind of angst and the kind of the, the grief of it to then layer on the narrative, layer on the the structure of the story, like layer on the story. Like what is the story that, 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 mm-hmm. you know, encases that emotional content. So, yeah. So I, please stick to the script. Don't, don't feel like my confession is in any way like a, like I'm, I need to be honest with myself about this because it is, this is where the book comes from, you know? Well, I mean, it's just, that's always the most interesting question to me. Where did this story come from? But often people don't have an answer. And when they do have an answer, it's, it's, it's rarely as potent as that. Um, so, I mean, I, I imagine I'm trying to think about a question without spoiling things here, but what I would say is it, it's interesting, therefore, that you clearly feel some residual guilt and you say, you know, Erin is based on yourself and you feel this guilt over your friend who is to whatever extent a kind of analog for Silas or Silas rather is mm-hmm. an analog for your friend. It's interesting then that Silas in this book is quite a malignant presence. Yeah. Is that a reflection on something or is, is that just pure fiction? Is that just you taking on taking the, 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 you know, the foundation and telling a story with it? It's his, his kind of malignancy I think evolved over, over the drafts, you know, I think that like it, you know, there are certain kind of reveals toward the latter end of the book, uh, which were not in the original drafts. Like I would, I would argue certain twists and epiphanies uh, were latter stage, (laughs) you know, surprises. Um, you know, there's the character of Tobias, who is essentially the Igor to Silas's Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein. And um, for the longest time, the book was more that Tobias was the malignancy, that like his his kind of inferior shadow self, you know, like given the fact that that Silas casts such a large shadow over the whole group, this whole group of friends, um, this this kind of secret history, Donna Tart, you know, light kind of thing, yeah. you know, like, you know, they are, you know, Silas was the kind of ringleader to that. And Tobias was this willful uh, henchman or willful kind of participant to Silas's own kind of megalomania. Um, but then with Silas gone, Tobias becomes kind of the, 
he he assumes that position and, and like becomes kind of like a, a a Silas Light or a Silas, you know, uh, an inferior version of Silas. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then there was this point where like in the drafting, like I, it, and it was probably like the eleventh hour where like I reached the end and then there was this moment of like, oh my God, what is happening? Like in my head, the story started to kind of like, like a bone began to break and it, it shifted the narrative in such a different direction that I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ride. I'm going to take the ride. I'm going to see where this takes me, see where it takes the story. And I didn't tell any, but God, I didn't tell my editor like they were like they were just as surprised as as I was because I I turned it in and I was like so I know we're we're supposed to be heading into line edits and copy edits now but uh, I have this thought <laughs> I and I'm I might be making a mountain out of the molehill here but they initially rejected the idea they were they were definitely like whoa what and they they dug in a little bit. But then after time and kind of talking through it and kind of reading it, 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 it became a part of the fabric of the story and in turn distanced itself even further away from the kind of historical, personal, like it's not my friend. It's, yeah. It isn't. Yeah. Like to the extent where like, you know, I'm, I'm being kind of cagey about even mentioning my friend by name because like it's just not him. But yeah, like it, Silas became his own character because he's he, like, it's so funny. Like, I feel like there is this, this kind of archetype to that character and you yourself, like we're, he is our Tyler Durden, you know, like it, there is something so like intoxicating about the person who enters into our life and gives mm -hmm. it definition and meaning yeah and what, what what was i said Ty, it was something like fight club by way of mr james or something like that um god i love that i love that that, that 90s affectless ennui laden you know that that that, that angst that was so you know familiar to the writers of the late 90s Paul Neuk and, and Bret Easton Ellis and Douglas Copeland and Donna Tartt, as you just said, in, in, her, in her own way in, in the, the secret history. That stuff is all in here. And I loved right from the get-go how this foursome, Erin, Silas, Tobias and their friend Amara, you frame them in relation to their love for this cold postmodern fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it does feel a little bit like their reading tastes are indications of character. Absolutely, man. You know, you mentioned Copeland, you mentioned Polonic, you mentioned uh, Tart. Like it's, I mean, I, I I have to come clean. Like this is this is my undergrad experience. Like I graduated <laughs> at a point where like, you know, the explosion of Dom DeLillo and Paul Auster and, you know, uh, infinite jest and a heartbreaking work of staggering genius mm -hmm. and like we all we all wanted to be those people but if i'm being completely completely honest like it, like the the real kind of analog like the real kind of root is we always wanted to be the beats like I, you know i always wanted to be 
<laughs> William S. Burroughs. And my friend always wanted to be Kerouac and our other friend wanted to be, you know, Ginsburg. And yeah, like... but, but so did Oster and, and uh, yeah. De Leo. They wanted to be the beats. The, 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 their entire fictional apparatus was about the fact that they no longer had, had access to the beauty that the beats had. You know, that's, that's like yeah. where I think that 90s thing comes from, a realising of the emptiness of contemporary life. Um, I'm sure Kerouac felt just as empty in his own way. I'm sure Ginsburg did. I've read Howl many moons ago. It seems to be that they felt equally empty, but there's something about DeLeo and and, and his ilk, especially, what's the guy? I've I've forgotten the guy who wrote Infinite Jest. My God. I've forgotten Um, his name. Wallace. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) David Foster Wallace, yeah. I mean, it it, it feels like all of that stuff is just its own version of, of like post-beat posturing yeah totally and we were all just doing that cosplay right like Mm -hmm. it's so funny like i went to this this school this college called sarah lawrence college wonderful school liberal arts school in new york just it's all about writing um Mm -hmm. joseph campbell had his you know he he worked there um you know it was it was this place of kind of the 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 breeding ground for for you know some pretty amazing writers and like my group of undergrad friends, like we, we formed this kind of cabal, you know, that was just like, we're going to take over the world. We're going to like, we're going to graduate, hit the literary establishment and just take it hostage. And it's going to be amazing. (laughs) We were so full of ourselves in this beautiful, naive way and to our credit, some of those 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 students have kind of gone on to have their their own very kind of successful literary career. But but when you look at the kind of microcosm from a more removed perspective, you realize, you know, as soon as you read the secret history, it's like, oh my god, I, you mean my little group of friends is not the only group of friends who think we're going to take over the literary world and like like we're not going to be the next Jonathan Safran Foer or the next you know. David Foster Wallace like it's there's like a moment where it's like oh I'm not I'm not so special I'm not you know uh and it's it's just like the kind of singularity of it is just kind of demystifies that whole experience and as soon as you graduate and enter into the real world that you just get you know forgive me but like you get bitch slapped and like you just it it becomes such a humbling kind of moment in time that uh (laughs) it's the best of times and it's the worst of times I just find it cool because as someone who's spent my share of time in in academic circles fixated on the postmoderns, there, there is something about seeing that reading taste as, like yeah. I said, an indicator of character that just rings really true. I cannot tell you about the amount of, of cigarillo-smoking, beret-wearing, skinny white guys who tried to convince me that Infinite Jest contains the meaning of the universe do you know what i mean so <laughs> i um and i do the same thing with with house of leaves which, which i always say i'll say it again it's house of leaves is infinite jest for goths um and you know i've done it myself but it, there's something about seeing that posturing and that posing laid bare that's really yeah. satisfying but also quite chilling because as an indicator of character it indicates a sort of lack of beauty a lack of depth and meaning and and interiority it's like and and when you read 
these characters, they do feel like vessels in search of meaning in, in a quite a chilling way. And of course, they find drugs. It just so happens that the drug has a supernatural connotation. Yeah, I think back to that time and like, you know, we kind of had this conversation a little bit earlier where like so much of the the literature, but also the film of that time, like I think of like Greg Araki um, in his films, like The Doom Generation, uh, Hal Hartley with Simple Men, um, you know, like there were, there were these like 90s auteurs who were creating this kind of affectless deadpan like style kind of posturing like like this this whole kind of like cinematic language that was just so like new to me and i loved it and it, it i i wanted to kind of like that to me would kind of baked into the notion of like what were these characters and like you know, I do think of them as vessels searching for for meaning and, and searching for something to say, because I think back to myself in my early 20s and I was a friggin vessel looking for something to say. I had nothing to say. Yeah, I still I don't you know, the jury's out whether or not I have something to say now. But like like the, the difference between now and then is that then I had the hubris to believe I was saying something or I had the, the kind of like that that kind of the just the kind of gall to believe that just because I had an opinion, someone else out there would want to hear it. And it's just not, it's just not true. Um, and until you, you get kind of ground down by the real world, you can live in that bubble or that live in that, that hermetically sealed kind of mind space of believing you are special. And, um, I maybe I'm just taking a dour kind of turn here, but like <laughs> maybe I'll frame it in the, the sense of these these characters, these characters and ghost eaters, they believe that they are special, but no, the world is gonna tell them that they are not. Um but maybe they are because they find ghosts and then they open up the world of the dead. Well, before we get into ghosts, because I think we've done like half an hour now talking about you know, abstract 90s nihilism and not mention ghosts <laughs> all that much. Um, first thing that struck me about this novel in comparison to your last Whisper Down the Lane. So Whisper Down the Lane was episode 32. Listeners, if you haven't heard that, go listen to that. But that book felt quite subtly dark, something akin to the tone of Rosemary's Baby or The Omen, something like that. Ghost mm. Eaters is a full-on horror show with these images that are really burned into my mind. And and we did talk last time a, a lot about cinematic influence with Whisper Down the Lane. And I want to do that again now, briefly, if you don't mind, because that imagery yeah. that is so important to the horror of Ghost Eaters, did you have any kind of visual palette in mind for that? Because the first thing that came to my mind was the sort of J-horror ghost of things like <laughs> the grudge. And I'm, I'm thinking of one scene in your book with this disembodied head, like blinking up from this bag. And it just felt like it reminded me so much of that bit in, in, in Duon where she lifts the, the cover and there's like a little boy's head lo- uh, looking at her. Um, I love it. Do you have a, did you have a kind of cinematic or visual palette in mind for your ghosts? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, okay. First off, I have to say, because you brought up whispered down the lane, 
Um, it's so interesting because in the time of Whisper Down the Lane's release and the, the, the beginning of embarking upon the writing of Ghost Eaters, the, a lot of the feedback that I got from Whisper Down the Lane was, oh, this isn't horror. This is psychological. This is a thriller. Or this is, this is yeah, not... But, yeah, but fuck those people, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so weird because, like, you know, I'm not begrudging people their opinions on the book. Like, they could say whatever they want about the book. But I just found it so strange that in this day and age, we're still having the kind of argument of, like, is it horror or is mm-hmm. it not horror? And, like, to me, like, psychological horror is, like, Norman Bates is still horror. Um, and Whisper Down the Lane, I felt like... I. It, it's horror to me. Um, so <laughs> I took, I forgive me, this is crass, but like I took that energy into the writing of Ghost Eaters where there was just this vibe of like, well, if people didn't think that Whisper Down the Lane was horror, I'm going to give you some friggin' fraggity fuck horror. <laughs> like, yeah. like I was just like, how do we, like I want to tell something that is scary. Like I want to, I want to try to do that. Um, and, and so like, that was one of many driving forces in writing ghost eaters. Um, but to your question about the kind of visual, you know, uh, template or like the kind of the, the cinematic correlatives for ghost eaters. Oh my God, there's so many. And you mentioned Juan, I will come clean and say pulse, um, Mm -hmm a huge huge uh driving force again you know thinking specifically of the the kind of um affectless deadpan dystopia of uh, a whole culture that just seems kind of awash in um its own you know i don't know like it's just kind of stupor pulse to me is a phenomenal movie um which in essence, you know, it's all about like the, the world of the dead is kind of overflowing. So they're using the, what the internet and maybe a particular website to kind of like come back into the, the, the land of the living. And I remember watching that and just being like, Oh my God, this movie is, it's, it's just killing me. Like I loved it so much. Um, so I need to cop to it and just say that <laughs> like, this is, you know, I know that there's already been a remake of pulse here in America. Um, but, uh, this may be my, my kind of antidote to that, that remake, <laughs> because it's it, like, I wanted to tell, I wanted to look at ghost stories and I wanted to kind of like push specifically to the notion of like, what is it to feel haunted? What is it to be haunted? Um, so you know, of all these things we've been speaking about, like when I pitched it to Quirk, I was like, it's train spotting meets poltergeist, um, which by the time it was written, it's it's euphoria meets poltergeist. <laughs> and like, you know, it's so, you know, but the, like that, that cinematic kind of quality of ghosts and like, who are these ghosts and what do these ghosts look like? I was, I was frigging obsessed with clear plastic tarps. I still am obsessed with clear plastic tarps. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, but like clear plastic tarps have become my default go-to when I think of like 
what is the kind of creepiest stuff known to man. Yeah. This might be a stretch. Sorry, Clay, but there's a certain scene <clears throat> in this book that is actually evoked for me in the cover of the book, which is incredibly striking, <laughs> which goes back in my mind to M.R. James's Old Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which yeah. is a scene in which someone only sees the ghost that is pursuing them because he throws a sheet over it. <laughs> yeah. And he sees the sort of the ghost in relief under the sheet. Um, and that's obviously evoked in the cover of, of, of um, Ghost Eaters. And there's also a scene where Erin lies down on a bed in her own, in her parents' house. And all of a sudden, all these jackets that she's lying on because there's a party, these jackets start to move because she realizes that ghosts are inhabiting all these jackets that she's lying on. And I just couldn't get away from, as I say, M.R. James's old whistle, that that sense of fabric being the thing that th shows a spirit in stark relief. And I suppose that clear plastic tarp is just the postmodern version of that. Vessels, vessels, like going back to the idea of vessels. And I... I think we have these 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 kind of archetypal images in our brain of like the the ghost being underneath the the sheet the white bedspread with the whole, two holes cut out and you know there was David Lowry's a ghost story which came mm -hmm. out recently which I loved um, I I lo I don't know like I I I really get excited when you take the the kind of simplest trope and tweak it just a little bit. Like I, I really loved, you know, ghosts under bedsheets and um, I wanted to kind of, you know, tweak it a little bit or play with that a little bit until it became uh, something a little bit more, not, not modern, but, but something that felt a little bit more almost like kind of a deconstruction, a reduction of the ghost trope. Um, but yeah, there's this amazing movie that I'm going to also cop to uh, bowing down to um, called Lace Crater. Oh, never heard of it. It's, it, it's a near and dear one to me. Uh, it is, it's basically all about a, a young woman in her twenties who uh, has a one night stand with a ghost and uh, she catches a supernatural STD. <laughs> um, and it's, it is, it's a movie that requires a certain level of not patience, but, but kind of like you have to go into it with an interesting kind of like open mind. It's one of these mumblecore films, super micro budget group of, you know, kind of affleckless early 20 somethings. Uh, you know, it's kind of questionable whether you identify with any of these characters, but the, the protagonist is this young woman who's kind of just like ambling along and she meets a ghost <laughs> and she, she sleeps with it. And uh, you're just watching the kind of gradual decay of her and how she kind of deals with what she's going through. Like it, it's terrifying in a way, like the more thought you put into it, the film, the film kind of like has its own stance. But like, when you just think about that, like, I love the idea of a supernatural STD. Like I love, I love it follows you know, which is, of course, like, I think the kind of, you know, you mentioned Juan and the kind of J-horror tropes or the that that kind of body of work and its kind of cinematic imprimatur on um, Ghost Eaters. Like, it's, I, I feel like It Follows is another one 
that 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 has its kind of root within this book. Um, but yeah, if you're ever looking for a film, I would suggest Lace Crater. Excellent. <laughs> Good to know. Um, you, you mentioned before about wanting to tweak the ghost story, but you also said that you were interested in the idea of what it means to be haunted. And one of my sort of prevailing theses about the ghost story, particularly the American tradition, is that what the great ghost stories quite often tell you is that it's not a place that's haunted, it is a person. And you can find that in Poe, you can find it definitely in Shirley Jackson's Haunt of Hill House, and King's The Shining, which is basically King's, you know, version of Hill House. Peter Straub's ghost story does the same thing. There's a great scene where someone says, you know, it starts with him saying, someone saying, um, I saw a ghost. And it becomes, after after various iterations, it becomes that person saying, I am a ghost or you are mm. a ghost. Um, that idea that people infect places with their ghosts or awaken ghosts that are already there rather than the site itself being the important thing. Would you say that's a fair point to make about your book? I think I would. I would like to. Hearing you speak, it made me kind of leap to, you know, Sartre's, you know, hell is other people. Mm -hmm. um, but that idea that, like, if, if we're the ones who are haunted, you know, we carry the baggage. And, like, we, you know, we have these, you know, we, we think of, you know... The, the kind of traditional definition in my mind of what what is a ghost or what is a haunted house is this idea that like you have a location a specific geographical point where great trauma has happened or occurred and because of that whatever that trauma is it roots the spirit or the kind of psychic energy of that the the people involved into that space which in my mind connotates that there's an enclosure or a vessel of some sort that, that needs to kind of encapsulate or, or contain that trauma. So we think of houses, haunted houses as a place of, you know, receptacles of trauma. Um, but there are these amazing, like there was this amazing essay by Rachel Moulton, Rachel Eve Moulton. I'm going to get the, I'm going to get, I can't remember where it's from, but she wrote this wonderful piece about like, it's, you know, women are the modern haunted house because they carry that trauma and those ghosts mm -hmm. within them. I love her writing and I love that essay. And it, it just made me kind of like, you know, go back to Shirley Jackson and this idea of like, what are we bringing into these spaces? And we are vessels in of ourselves. And like the, the more hollow the individual or the more kind of, I want to say empty, but it's that idea of like, the more we, we are trying to find our own identity or striving towards finding our own identity, the more we are kind of possessed by the identities of others, be that supernatural or not. Like, I love Nirvana and I'm going to wear my Nirvana t-shirt. I love Michael Jer Jordan, so I'm going to wear my Michael Jordan shoes. Um, like, we take on the identities or the the the, the kind of signifiers of others Um so when you imbue the supernatural onto that, when you, you you give it a ghost, like we are vessels too, and we're just like ripe for <laughs> possession. 
Um, yeah, because there's something yeah. about that word possession because it, it can mean both the T-shirt you buy and the, 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 the shoes you're wearing. And it can also mean what those things do to you. But as you say, imprinting some personality that may not be your own upon yourself. So that word possession becomes very flexible when you're talking about that kind yeah, of thing. Absolutely. The reason I said about the person being haunted, not the place, is because you are right. You know, the I'm saying the great American tradition is that it's the person who comes to the place. But at the same time, America is a, a land that is ripe for haunting because of this kind of dual stain of slavery and native genocide you know these great original sins of america uh, and the sense that that violence and exploitation is just it has stained the land red so you've got those two those those two strands the person and the place and it strikes me that that ghost eaters kind of unifies that a sort of single theory of haunting because those ghosts those ghosts are there you know the, the the indigenous population they're there these spirits these the ghosts of these enslaved people are there but they're only seen when someone who has the means i.e someone who has taken the drug is able to see them and it's kind of the idea of you know if if no one is there to see a ghost does the ghost exist and 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 that's what i find interesting you kind of linked you cross the streams of, of the two strands of what haunting is in America. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like it, there was an early conversation. Well, maybe not early. There was a mid middle point, midpoint conversation with my editors where the, the conversation kind of revolved around privilege and the notion of to take this drug, there's a certain privilege of assuming that, you know, if you were to take ghost, that you would only be able to see the people that you wanted to see. Um, where in, in all honesty or re- reality as kind of posited by this, this concept, you know, it, you would not have that privilege. You would, you would take this drug and then the, the, the floodgates would in, would in essence kind of open up to whoever was there. So, you know, a, a, a thread needed to be addressed or kind of interwoven within the text, which is the the kind of sheer audacity of privilege of, you know, and I think this goes back to like spiritualism and kind of seances where there's like just this, this notion of, I don't want to deal with the, the kind of psychic trauma of the whole country. I don't want to deal with the psychic trauma of the civil war. I just want my loved one back. I want my son back, my father back, my husband back because he died in the battle of Shiloh or Antietam. And now I'm going to the, the psychic, the spiritualist to kind of reach out to the other side and connect to my, my loved lost one. Where if you, if you really kind of think about it, it would, <laughs> it would be picking up, a, 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 you know, this telephone that just connects to everything, all, you know, ghosts at large. And um, I don't know, like the, I, I, the gaw of someone like Aaron being like, no, 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 you know, I don't want to deal with yeah. 200 years, 2000 years of, of psychic trauma. I just want, I just want Silas back. Can I do that, please? <laughs> So, and you also make yeah. these really cool kind of implied criticisms whereby, you know, 
Erin sees these ghosts in in places that are inherently exploitative. So there is a, a ghost of a black, presumably enslaved person who she sees in the in in the middle of a bar that exists in an old plantation house, and it's the you yeah. know this this creepy sense of gentrification and exploitation of spaces and and all that kind of stuff that that does come through as well like you're saying that the privilege of it and the entitlement of it it does come through but let's move on because i want to get pack all this stuff in <laughs> this drug ghost right it's made from mushrooms yeah. i'm not going to reopen the conversation of why mushrooms in horror because you're about the sixth guest i've had on whose book is in wholly invested in the malign power of fungi um <laughs> This time around, at least, the mushroom element is practical. It's practical because it's about psychedelics. Um, And I'm not sure if this is too personal a question. Have you ever done shrooms or any kind of psychedelic? Oh, my God. Okay. Am I... I'm going to totally talk about this because, first off, you're the first person to really (laughs) ask me. And it's still early days in kind of talking about this book. So... I'm going to go on public record and say, yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I need to say up front, I am extremely lame and extremely, <laughs> uh, I'm a party pooper. Like I don't, I just don't do anything. I don't drink. I, you know, like I'm, I'm a breath away from being straight edge just by sheer uh, design of my own kind of, squareness um i just don't partake but that all said i've i have shroomed and it was astounding (laughs) like it was like and it wasn't it wasn't for the sake of this book like i wasn't like well if i'm gonna write about mushrooms i need to take mushrooms but it was it was again like it was that stupid kind of 20 like you're in your 20s and you're just like let's do this thing and i did the thing and I mean, it was a group of friends. I we had the audacity to believe we could beat the sun, and like I just remember, like we were just like, F, you know, f you, sun, like we were better than you, <laughs> and like, oh my god. Um, but yeah, I I have shroomed. I, I'm I'm a, grateful that I did, purely for the sake that I can say I have, and so when I write about these things. They're coming from a place of experience. <laughs> well, that, that that's good to know. Yeah, because I I never have. Right, I'm too scared that I'll rip open my own subconscious, or that I'll yeah, you know, find the keys to the universe and then lose them in the back of the couch. I'm I'm not built for that sort of thing at all. I, I'm as as somebody who's so in, immersed in horror as I am, I'm just terrified that all the darkness in my mind is just waiting to wreak havoc. <laughs> you know, the, um, I, I just, I did wonder that about, about you as someone who is a horror writer and someone who inhabits a macabre imagination, shall we say, that has got to be a risk to do any kind of hallucinogenic or any kind of psychedelic. Yeah. I don't recommend it. I don't, you know, I don't want to pop psychology myself, but like I come from a family that has dealt with addiction on a lot of different levels, mainly alcoholism. And it is something that has been in, in my family's DNA, you know, for quite some time. And uh, I grew up believing 
I needed to kind of maintain this hard line against it to the extent where like, you know, one sip of alcohol, one sip of wine would be enough to kind of unravel all of that pent up kind of like fear of succumbing to this addiction or succumbing to this, this alcoholism. So like I've made a boogeyman out of narcotics and alcohol because of what it's done to certain members of my family. And I grew up kind of believing I just couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't because of what happened to X. And then I reached my twenties and I was just like, fuck it, let's do it. (laughs) And then, and then it was like, oh my God, this is like, I just didn't, I wasn't happy. Like I just wasn't happy. Um, And I, I cut it out of my life for the the brief period that it was in my life. Um, And I just haven't gone back. And I realize, and I don't, and I don't know if this is for the betterment of myself as a human being, but I do, I real, I am going to acknowledge that like I bundle up everything and it's all this kind of like straining muscle of tension, assuming that like, I need to hold on to the darkness. I need to hold on to the, like, I need to kind of maintain the line, like hold on Mm -hmm. to the line. Um, Because if I don't, any any creativity, any anything that makes me who I am and who I believe I am creatively, personally, personably, like all of that, like it's all going to go away. Like I will lose my identity to like drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am nothing but a ball of neuroses and nerves <laughs> and angst um, because I, I've convinced myself that's what I need to be. Um, and I'm now in my forties and I will probably die of a heart attack <laughs> pretty soon. Last week's episode was all about mental health in horror. Um, and really? it turns out you're wow. clearly not alone in this clay. We're all a big bundle of neuroses holding the dark line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of the same with, with drugs and stuff because I, my mum, when I was growing up, my mum ran a drug rehabilitation unit in a town oh my near God. me. So I grew up just thinking that because I basically grew up surrounded by like junkies. I used to go to work with her. We used to do needle exchanges where you give like clean needles to people and stuff. Oh so I God. met all people from all all you know positions on the the addiction spectrum, uh, and I was just convinced at any point that if I ever took one tablet, that I that was it. I'd be homeless. I'd have no teeth, and I would die you know, of an overdose in an alleyway. That was, so I, I never really experimented at all. I was, I was quite afraid of that stuff when I was a kid. Wow. It's astounding how like we carry, I can't even imagine that. Like that's a, that's a story. Here, there I go again. That's this, you know, like think of that, that, that life. Um, oh, it just blows my mind. I can't, I can't believe it. You reminded me, talked about drugs, the point I wanted to mention. This isn't a question, Clay. This is the bit in the conversation where I take the, the opportunity to tell you something you don't need to know, but it's a cool thing. Lay it on me. Have you ever heard of machine elves? No. <laughs> right. I, I think you will like this in relation to um, your book, and I think the listeners will get a kick out of it. So I, I don't have all the info. You can Google it. But machine elves apart from being a great name for a band, it's a term used by Terence McKenna, who is was a famous, in his own terms, psychonaut. Um, 
he was somebody who was very into his hallucinogenics and he described these creatures that people have supposedly seen if they take just enough DMT. <laughs> and wow. the, the idea goes that if you take just the right amount of DMT, you kind of pass through, well, in his own words, I wrote the quote down, quote, you pass through a membrane of some sort and you're in a place. You've pushed through and you see the tykes, as I call them, the self-transforming machine elves that are singing yeah. in a hyper-dimensional language. They surround you and say, welcome, we're so glad to see you, end of quote. And supposedly people all over the world, entirely independent of any kind of cultural reference, saw these same creatures. And people even pointed to how similar these modern accounts are to what Amazonian tribes described when they took ayahuasca. And it all just feels very relevant to your novel. You know, the idea that if you take this drug, it's a doorway to the other side. That is amazing. When you started, I was like, is he going to speak? Is he going to talk about gremlins? But no, this is even better. Like, I, I love this. Yeah, it, you can go down the rabbit hole with it in a big way if you just Google Machine Elves or Terence McKenna. Um, but, it, I mean, it, that whole thing about drugs being a portal, and in particular DMT, because they don't really know what DMT is for in the brain. They know it, they know it floods the brain when you die and they think it's possibly, it gives you like a lovely hallucinogenic kick just as you're about to shuffle off the mortal coil. But there's a, there's a cool horror thing in there about it being a portal to somewhere else. And and you've oh kind God. of riffed on that in your, in your novel. And I suppose actually that leads to an interesting question. And this may be a little crass now that you've told us where this story came from. But if you could take a drug that will let you see the supernatural or let you see ghosts, would you take it? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I mean, well, OK, so let me let me see if I can think that through. I mean, my knee jerk is like, no, 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 because you th that's the whole don't go up the stairs kind of horror trope. Like you can't like here's a thing that you shouldn't do. But are you going to do it? Um, I I want to believe that I would have the fortitude and strength not to, but I am weak and I might, might, but I would, you know, you have to acknowledge like, you know, there's just no telling what's on the other side of door number one. Um, I would be too afraid. I think I would be too afraid. I couldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. Nobody should do it. No, no, I probably would though. <laughs> If, if I could see my granddad again, yeah. Yeah. But I don't really want to see the next door neighbor's mother-in-law who, yeah. So I suppose, like you say, it goes back to what you say. It's that entitlement thing. I want to be, I, I want to be the privileged white girl who says, I only want to see my boyfriend. I don't want to see all the yeah. generational pain that, that, that endures around me. I suppose that yeah. is the point of all this, isn't it? You can't have one without the other. I mean, if you believe spiritualism... It's the idea that like, yeah, 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 totally. Like, we'll, we'll connect you. Like, we'll, I'll hook you up. And, you know, you, you, you're missing this person. Let me, let me reach out and I'll, I'll see if I can grab them. Hmm. And I know that impulse. Like, I, I, I felt that impulse. But I'm just too afraid of the, 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 like, the ramifications of, of what is behind there. And it's because it's the unknowable. It's the unknown. It's the thing that we don't see. And we, we want to believe we know what's on the other side, 
but it's like, oh God. I mean, it's just Pandora's box, man. Like it's just that that vibe of like, don't do it. Don't open it. You know you shouldn't open it. But of course you want to open it. And of course you're tempted to. And of course you're going to. And then that's why that's why we have such we have so many great horror movies about this. I was gonna say horror stories entirely depend on that that compulsion, don't they? That's if if people were just totally. sensible, there'd be no stories. <laughs> Listen, let's <laughs> Let's wrap this up with just a, a few asides to some other projects of yours that are imminent. Um, what can you tell us about Wendell and Wild, this show that's coming out on Netflix at the end of October? Uh, if I'm being honest, I can tell you very little. And that's just because it's it. there is a PR machine behind it that uh, kind of doles out the information. But uh, right. it is... The world premiere will be on, uh, it will, the, by the time that this airs, the world premiere will have been at the Toronto International Film Festival, which I'm going to go to, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, and then it will premiere, it'll have a, a limited theatrical release on October 21st. Um, and then it will be on Netflix on October 28th. Um, and it is directed by the mastermind of stop motion animation, Henry Selleck. Um, and it is, uh, you know, written by Henry and Jordan Peele starring the voices of Jordan Peele and Ke- Keegan-Michael Key, uh, Key and Peele. And, um, you know, I, I was really fortunate to come into this process at a point where they were figuring out the story and, uh, yeah, it was, so when a, did you write that book? Um, I was involved in it from, I guess, like 2016 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was the early stages of the, the whole process when uh, there was this kind of Venn diagram of like, what is the story going to be? And like, where is it going to go? And like, what's it going to be? And uh, being able to kind of be in a room in a process with both Henry and Jordan was... I mean, it was amazing. It was phenomenal. Um, I was going to say, did you meet Jordan Peele? Yeah, yeah. You know, we'd had some kind of encounters before, and this was this was kind of an opportunity to kind of I, I don't know. Collaborate is is a little bit you know presumptuous of me, but like it, you know, we kind of all kind of dipped into this this one pool that became um, Wendell and Wild, and it was. Yeah, it was super exciting. Cool. And secondly, and please don't disappoint me now, Clay, please. <laughs> okay. Th- okay. This, sh- this show unknown that you were developing yes. with Nolan, is it still happening? Yes. I mean, as far as I know, yeah. Like, you know, the, the gears, the Amazonian gears, shall we say, grind slowly. Um, but uh, Craig... My co-writer, co-creator, we have been developing this TV series with Kilter Films, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy's company, um, for Amazon for a while now. And uh, I I guess I should say nobody has said no yet, which is always what you want. You just don't want anybody to say no. Is it in, it in production yet? No, 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 no. We're developing it. So we are, we're writing it. We are making the architecture of it. Like it is, 
a thing that is kind of sprawled out over um, episodes. And uh, yeah, Craig and I are just... Uh, so so let, let me just like, kind of titillate the audience because this is... I, I, I stole this quote from an article about it that I saw last May. And I haven't seen an article since, which is why I was worried it wasn't happening. But here goes. Unknown is a psychological horror anthology series that plunges into the corners of the American landscape, probing the intersection of folklore and our bloody history of true crime. That's like a drug to me. That's like basically <laughs> all my... It's like you've, made, you've taken all my favourite podcasts and made a drama about it. Like, yeah. like folklore and true crime and like the macabre history of America. That, yeah, that I, I need that in my life. Yeah. Me too, man. Me too. And I mean, you know, it's amazing because I, I don't think the concept is anything new. And I, and I feel like, you know, we have to kind of tread carefully because this idea of like, we're looking at very specific corners of America. And, you know, to kind of go back to what we were talking about with ghost eaters, this, this country is forged on blood. And you look at your history, you look at our history, and you you got to recognize that, like, each corner of the country has its own, um, uh, it, 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 its own kind of folklore, its own kind of, like, uh, stories. And a lot of times those stories intersect with places that also have very specific cultural trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, we use this notion of true crime, this, this kind of new kind of catchphrase or, you know, kind of tell all of, 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 you know, his history, like true crime to me, just is another way of kind of like, it's giving more of a kind of polish to the notion of like history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I think that basically unknown is kind of drawing a line between folklore and history, folklore and true crime. And it, you know, we could, if we're given the green light, like this could be about like, why are these stories being told in the places where these specific crimes happen? And why is it that these stories kind of give us a a fictionalized version of historical events, you know? Mm-hmm. So knock on wood, there, there could, this could happen. It could not, you know? You know, I think that that yeah, it's 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 always it's always a gamble, but we're we are nothing if not optimistic. Well, so am I, because I I need to see that, and I am no fan of Jeff Bezos, but come on, Jeff, do do us a good turn. <laughs> um, right, let let's finish off with the the old stalwarts, Clay. Can you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? Oh my God, the last book I read that I just finished, probably last week. Uh, was this novel called uh, Between Two Fires by Christopher Buhlman. I hope I'm saying that right. Buhlman. Yeah. Um, it, he wrote a novel. The first novel I read by him was called The Lesser Dead, mm-hmm. which was a, about kind of vampires in, I think, like 70s New York City. Pretty, really good novel. But I read Between Two Fires, and it was awe-inspiring. It is a medieval historical horror novel it is about 400 pages long it is dense but it is 
like it steeps you into the kind of the 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 plague narrative of um france i'm gonna i'm gonna get all the history and all of the kind of facts wrong but the the kind of experience of this book is so gorgeous and so lush and actually oddly quite humorous in its own kind of gallows humor way um it is in essence about three characters who go on a pilgrimage through plague-ridden france um they have to make like what am i going to say about this book it's a young woman a monk and an ex-soldier all going on a pilgrimage through plague-ridden france while demons are breaching the kind of the land of the the dead to to come to our world and it is stunning it's gorgeous buhlman just writes the the hell out of this book and i loved it so much and there are some scenes in it that i will forever ever carry with me like way up their book you're not the first person to recommend that book you're certainly not the first to recommend christopher buhlman to me and he's one of those authors that i've just it's just a blind spot for me. I've just not read his stuff yet. Um, there's a few authors like that who uh, the last sort of 10 years who I just haven't caught up with. Um, so I will definitely, definitely make time for it because I hope to get Chris on next time round for his next book, whatever that may be. Um, but that, yeah, that does sound like a nice bit of a bit of a change, a bit of medieval horror. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, totally worth it. Totally worth it. Last one. And you know what's coming now, right? The big question. What <laughs> truly scares you, Clay? Last time you said it was the thought of your kids going out into the world. So it could be that again, but worse or something else. But what truly scares you? You know, it's funny. Like I've, I put a lot of thought into this and, you know, I do, I do feel like I want to come back at you with a new answer because when we last talked, like we were in COVID times and we're still in COVID times, but we're in this new kind of era of COVID times. And, uh, the, the, the thought of kind of pushing our children, my children, out into the world was a, a very terrifying thought. Um, and that was kind of the genesis for uh, <laughs> Whisper Down the Lane. But now I, I still have that fear, but it's kind of mutated in a strange way where I think one of the things that scares me most now is that I'm fucking my children up. Like I'm... I'm ruining them on some fundamental, emotional, psychological level. And I'm not stopping that. (laughs) Like, and, and it's funny, it like, this is crass, but it's like kind of segueing that fear is segueing into the book that I'm working on right now. And it is, it's just this notion of like, I'm starting to see patterns in my children you know, whether it's the way they speak, the way they act, the way that they're acting with each other, the things that they say, like I'm, I'm seeing myself echoed back at me. And it's terrifying because I'm acknowledging that like the things I'm doing are putting an imprint on them. And that, that is kind of terrifying because it's, it's basically saying, we're just, we're just screwing up our kids on a daily basis on either a small level or on a grand level. And I don't know, I don't know where I'm landing just yet, but I'm seeing it. And that really scares me. (laughs) Do you really think any, I mean, I don't have kids, so I should not speak on this, but do you really think any parent gets through 
the first like 18 years of a human being's life without kind of making some screw up. I'm sure you'll be fine, Claire. You're a nice person. You're a caring person. I'm sure they'll be okay. I mean, the kids will be all right for sure. I well, God, God willing, hopefully like we'll see. But like, I mean, it's just so, I mean, it's amazing how like something so inconsequential to me, I'll say something and I'm just thinking it's like a flippant thing. But it it changes their world. Like that <laughs> happens. Like something I just I'll just toss it out there. Like but it it has the potential to forever alter the course of their ex- their existence. And the, the 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 power of that, the kind of like for me, like I I'm just gonna be flippant and just say something dismissive, but no, like that, like that has consequences. And it won't be until I'm on my deathbed that one of my sons is going to say, dad, when you said that to me, when I was six years old, you fucked me up. And I'll be like, Rosebud. (laughs) (laughs) If it helps, my old man is the most provocative, contrary human being on the planet. (laughs) And I've turned out all right. (laughs) Oh my God. There you go. Yeah. We're all right. We're going to be all right. Right, well, with that typically optimistic ending, <laughs> we'll draw this to a close. It's been a long episode, but but the book is worth it. Perhaps not so much my aside about machine elves, but let's see if that stays in the edit. This, as I say, it's out today. It's a whole different take on ghost stories. I think people will dig it. I think people who like all that late 90s angst-ridden stuff will love it as well. I hope everyone buys it and reads it. And I, I can't wait to see what you do next and particularly to watch Unknown. But Clay McLeod Chapman, thank you for talking scared. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. I always like speaking to Clay. Really enjoyed that conversation and really enjoyed this book. This is a proper horror story. Now, I know there are all kinds of horror, blah, blah, blah. Come on, I made the bumper sticker on that one. You know that I consider this genre the broadest church possible. As I said, Clay's previous novel, Whisper Down the Lane, is a great horror novel in all its subtlety. But sometimes you want real, unadulterated, nasty imagery and skin-crawling discomfort. And that's what Ghost Eaters delivers. Scene upon scene that feels like the best horror movie, but it's only playing inside your head. Have you ever considered what it would be like to be licked by a ghost? No? Read this book and find out. (laughs) It's got that great 90s vibe. Remember when I spoke to Ronald Malfi about his novel, Come With Me, episode 49 for The Curious? We talked about how... That novel had a particular 90s vibe too, reminiscent of TV shows like The X-Files and Millennium and Twin Peaks. Well, Ghost Eaters is a different 90s. It's a 90s of grunge and drug culture and ennui and the great techno horror that came out of Asia. It has a very particular feel and I do think a lot of people will love it. I must admit, for all the chat we had about postmodern authors... And, and, and the clever books. I thought I knew my references, but you may have been able to tell by my rare silence that I had very little idea 
about the cool indie darling movies that Clay kept mentioning. I have no idea who Greg Araki is. <laughs> Even though Clay mentioned him to me both on the show and in a private chat, I just nodded like I knew what he was on about. And if you're listening, Clay, sorry, mate, but you're just too cool for me. <laughs> in my defence... I brought machine elves, and I, honestly, I couldn't wait to crowbar them into a conversation. And if you want to know more about that, I've put a link in the show notes to an article about Terence McKenna and his theories. I'm not saying any of it's real. I mean, after all, it's the anecdotal evidence given by people who were off the tits on DMT and ayahuasca. But it's a great spooky idea. Creatures that live outside our reality at a portal through chemicals inside our own brains. Come on. If anyone out there has ever taken DMT or ayahuasca or any of these other drugs that I'm far too frightened to try, if you've met the gremlins behind the curtain, then I'd love to hear about it. Or just get in touch to talk about books. You can find me as ever on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Oh, and the Patreon. If you want bonus episodes, remember that link is patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. All subscriptions really, really help me make this show. And it also is starting to give me some reasons to conduct more niche interviews outside this main show's purview. So check it out and sign up and thanks very much. Recent subscribers include Kathia, Sephora and Alina, which are all fantastic names, belonging no doubt to fantastic people. Thanks very much for your support. I'm back next week with Alexis Henderson and her erotically charged, blood-drinking, gothic House of Hunger. It's already in my top ten reads of the year and I can't wait to speak to her about it. Off the back of that book and her previous novel, The Year of Witching, Alexis is going to be a massive name. So listen in. But until then, say no to bad drugs, say yes to whatever else you like, and stay hydrated. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>